I'm entitling the message this morning, The Passover Plot. Some of you are going to be familiar with that. Most of you won't. In the 1960s, there was a book that appeared called The Passover Plot, and it was made into a movie. And the premise in that book was that Jesus basically planned his arrest and execution and resurrection with an inner circle of co-conspirators. According to this book, Jesus was planning to go to a cross, but to somehow be rescued from that cross, to fake death and fake a resurrection. And things went horribly bad when a Roman soldier pierced his side and much to his amazement, he actually winds up dying. And then they faked the resurrection. The problem with that is it never happened. What really happened is what's in our Bible. A real Jesus is going to go to a real cross and he's going to die a real death, but he's also going to come back to life. You see, there are going to be people, particularly now in this season, holiday season, who are going to try to convince you that the Bible's not true. So my job, as usual, is to convince you that it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, we pray as we open up your word that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 20, it says, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. The New Testament tells the story of Christ's betrayal in the context of this Passover. The author, like I said, of the Passover plot has a different version, but the real version, as it's found in our Bibles, we discover that the death of Jesus is connected to the Passover. But his death is going to be caused by the plotting of the religious leaders in verses 3 through 5 at the beginning of the chapter. His death is actually going to come through a series of deceptions and betrayals in verses 24 and 25. And you might be amazed at how much time and energy is spent by the Holy Spirit trying to convince us of the importance of the manner in which Jesus is going to die. It's going to be, again, through the deception and the betrayal of someone close to him.
In the New Testament Passover plot, Jesus is the lamb marked for death. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to appear as the lamb some 26 times throughout that book. He is portrayed as the lamb that was slain and comes back to life. The death of Jesus wasn't the monstrous circumstance of a plan gone wrong. The death of Jesus was part of God's plan. Jesus, the lamb, and like the Old Testament Passover lamb, Jesus, remember, is inspected and then sacrificed in order to rescue his people. And so in this passage, remember what I spoke to you earlier on, that even though Judas is going to betray his Lord, Jesus is going to give him opportunity to repent of his sin. And in this passage, Jesus gives Judas opportunity to turn from his sin and repent of his sin. How does Jesus give Judas the opportunity to turn and to change? Well, it happens in three ways. Number one, Jesus is going to expose the sin of Judas. Jesus is going to reveal the deception in verse 21. And second, Jesus is going to warn Judas about judgment in verse 24. And then he's going to identify Judas as the person who will be the person who betrays him. All of this is going to present an opportunity. Unlike most of us in our circumstances, when our sin is exposed, we try to hide our sin. But there's a reason why God exposes our sin. It isn't because he hates us. It's because he loves us. And so in verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 20, the table, the Passover table is going to be set as the plot thickens. Look what it says in verse 20. When evening had come, he sat down with his with the 12 earlier Jesus sent Peter and John you'll remember into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover in verses 17 through 19 it's also in Mark chapter 14 verses 12 through 16 and Luke chapter 22 verses 7 through 13 it compiles the circumstances that are going to lead up to this betrayal so now at Passover, Jesus is going to sit down with the 12. Luke's gospel adds in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Luke records his comments at that point when Jesus says, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of, of God, in verse 16 of, of Luke. So Jesus sits down, but he also is going to begin to speak to them about not just the meaning of Passover, but the meaning of the hours and the days ahead of what's going to happen as far as his death and his resurrection. So it's at this time, by the way, that Jesus is going to sit down, for those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, 
And he's going to wash the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. So just in quick order, here's what's going to unfold. Jesus is going to partake of the Passover with the apostles. He's going to rebuke their contentions and their divisions. He is going to wash their feet. He's going to identify Judas as the traitor. Judas is going to withdraw from the group. And so, again, we continue. So the Passover is eaten at night after the sun has gone down. And so that's why the text says it is evening. So it's sometime after 6 o'clock. And again, most of the time in that culture people would sit down or they would lay down. And so in that culture and society, they didn't have a table like you have a Thanksgiving table and there wouldn't have been chairs seated around a table. They would have sat around a cloth or they would have reclined around the cloth. So it's at this point that Jesus is inviting them to partake of the meal after this, after he's washed their feet, they're sitting around and they are eating. And so that's when the revelation is made in verse 21. Look what it says. Now, as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Over and over again in John's gospel, over and over again in Matthew, we see that expression, assuredly. When Jesus says, verily, verily, or assuredly, it's an idiomatic expression which just basically means, I'm telling you the truth, or I'm about to tell you the truth. Now again, it isn't because he lied before. He doesn't draw attention to the truth, but rather he's drawing attention to this specific truth for careful meaning. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Now remember again, at the Passover, there were three elements in the Passover. There was the Passover lamb. There was the bitter herbs. There is the unleavened bread. And so the elements of the dinner are going to include the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. And remember, it speaks of the bondage of Israel and then the unleavened bread, the haste that they have to make in order to escape that night. But here, Jesus, once again, in that context, predicts his betrayal. Why, again, does he focus on this? Because the revelation of the betrayal is also going to serve as an opportunity. The Lord Jesus is going to reveal the sin and the treachery and the deception. You'll remember that Judas is trying to hide his sin. And this becomes a type and a picture of the human condition of which we are a part of. And so trying to hide from sin isn't something that's unique to you or me. It began all the way in the garden. You'll remember when Adam and Eve transgressed the commandment of the Lord, they made a run for it. They tried to hide the Lord exposes our sin. And it's interesting to me that the revelation of sin, remember, isn't the judgment of sin. It's that which precedes judgment. 
So the Lord, as he exposes their sin, just like he does for Adam and Eve, just like he does for Judas, he uses this as an opportunity so that we would confess our sin, admit our sin, condemn our sin, and agree with God concerning our sin. And so I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. Because again, in the context of the Passover and also in the context of an ordinance that's going to be given, the Lord's Supper, it provides us with an opportunity. Because the death of Jesus is supposed to point to the reality of our own sin. And because it points to the reality of our own sin, it gives us opportunity to engage in examination. This upcoming Thursday, many of you are going to gather with your family around a Thanksgiving meal. In our culture and society, we share a meal with our family. We share a meal with our friends. We express gratitude to God. And just like this Passover meal, and just like our upcoming Thanksgiving meal, meals in that culture and in our culture expresses certain human needs, food for hunger, water for thirst, but According to the Bible, we need something way more than just our appetite being satisfied or our thirst being satisfied. We have spiritual needs and the most basic need that we have is for our sins to be forgiven. And for us to be reconciled to God, we live in a culture and a society where people will actually say, even so-called consultants for church, they'll say, you know what, you, you have to tone it down when it comes to this, this issue of sacrifice and blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. We live in a culture and a society where people, they don't understand that imagery and they don't understand that symbolism. And my position is, no, we live in a culture and a society that even though they don't want to talk about it, they understand that there's something broken inside of them. They understand that something has gone terribly wrong in the world. They understand that almost certainly the sin in the, in the world is because of people in the world. Because I'm in the world. <laughs> because you're in the world. We have spiritual needs. We need to have our sin recognized. Not for the purpose of condemning us. And judging us. But for the purpose so that we can confess our sin. And be reconciled to the Lord. And so in ancient times the Lord's Supper or, or communion was sometimes celebrated with a common loaf. And in the early church, they didn't have little wafers that we hand out a, when we have communion. They, they don't have these little pieces of bread in, in a pop-top cup where, you know, you just you, you pop the element in and you pop the juice in and you're good to go. In the ancient culture, particularly at the beginning of the church, they would have a common loaf and they would break that common bread. Paul hints at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. He says, for we being many are, for we being many are one bread and one body. 
For we all partake of that one bread. The symbolism and the imagery of the common loaf was that Jesus is that loaf. And we partake of the sacrifice that Jesus made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, it says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrificers partakers of the altar? Paul's point is that the religious feasts as they were observed in the ancient culture and particularly among the Jews, that these feasts were meant for people to come together and fellowship with one another and celebrate with one another what God has done. And so what was true in the Lord's Supper in the early church and what was true among the feasts of the Jews at the beginning becomes true for us, if we'll allow it. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is going to use this final Passover to expose sin in the camp. One of you will betray me. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion or the ordinance known as the Lord's Supper, which we're going to, to do in a couple of weeks as we're going through this particular passage, that it becomes a time of reflection and evaluation. There's a reason why when you think about the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the reason for that death, it's supposed to awaken in your heart and in your soul the reality of what it means to need, need a Savior. Now again, we live in a culture and a society that when you're busted, the earth... The, Civilization falls apart. But look at the response of the disciples in verse 22. In verse 22 it says, And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? When the disciples hear the news that one of them is going to betray them. The, the, according to the text, they're full of shock and sorrow and self-doubt. The revelation that this is going to happen brings about a personal evaluation and examination. The, the disciples are forced to look into their own hearts and ask the question, is it possible could it be me? Am I the person who's guilty of this sin? Now, again, as the drama unfolds, it's going to become more and more important in your own life. The believer in Jesus, you'll remember, is exhorted to examine himself or herself before partaking of the Lord's Supper. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 through 29, when Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Note what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says that this examination shouldn't keep you from participating. It should motivate you to participate. Why? Because remember what celebrating 
the Passover, in this instance, for the Christian celebrating the Lord's Supper does. It points us to the death of Jesus. And what is the meaning of the death of Jesus? He dies for sin, for your sin, for my sin. And so the Lord's Supper or the communion service in a very real way is a sermon. But instead of a sermon that is spoken with words, it's a sermon that's acted out or proclaimed when we look at the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Because in the communion, we look forward, we look back at the death of Jesus, and we look forward at the resurrection of Jesus. So for Christians, there are two ordinances that we observe. The first is baptism. We're going to have a baptism on December 3rd. Under normal circumstances, a person is baptized only once. Under normal circumstances in the Christian life, the Lord's Supper is observed over and over and over again. Baptism serves as a sign of identification with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. The Christian believer doesn't get baptized typically over and over and over again. You may have grown up in a religious tradition where you were baptized as an infant. And so it occurred to you that you had no say in the circumstances of your baptism. You may have grown up in a religious uh, system or a religious circumstance where in that religious system or circumstance, you were told that that baptism washed away original sin and it made you a part of the body of Christ. But then you learn that no, baptism is an event that identifies with Jesus in his life and his death, and it becomes a public pro proclamation of love and loyalty to Jesus. And then in the Lord's Supper, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, it becomes an opportunity for us to over and over again examine our hearts, reflect and consider what Jesus has done. So what does it mean to participate in an unworthy manner? What Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, it means to refuse to examine yourself. It means to refuse to deal with unconfessed sin. It means that that the sin in our life, we don't deal with it and we won't repent of it. And so failure to examine yourself or repent of the sin often can lead to judgment. And so this is the reason why we examine ourselves before we have communion. This is the reason why I invite you to look into your heart before you eat the bread or swallow the juice. You see, none of us are sinless and none of us are beyond sin, but all of us remember that it is Jesus in his love and in his grace and in his mercy who is sacrificed for our sin and risen from the dead for our justification. And so in the text, remember as we follow the text, Jesus reveals the sin of one of them, but all of them begin to examine their self. And they say, Lord... Lord, has something gone wrong inside of me and inside of my heart? And look at what, how Jesus responds in verse 23. He answers and he says, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish 
He will betray me. In the time of Jesus, when they gather around this table, it wasn't unusual in that culture and in that society to have a common bowl where everyone would place their hand in that bowl or in that dish. It's not going to be like Thanksgiving. Can you imagine when you're passing the, 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 the mashed potatoes and everyone just sticks their hand in and just gets a handful and sticks it on their plate? Or they go to the gravy bowl and you stick your hand in the gravy bowl or the, the green beans with onion on the top with that wonderful mushroom gravy or whatever it is that you put on there. In this culture and society, they're going to put their hand in the common bowl or in the common dish. My friend Craig Keener, who wrote the Bible background commentary, writes, quote, bitter herbs were dipped into a mixture of nuts and fruit and vinegar to lessen their bitterness. That someone who was betraying a person would dip in the bowl with that person, and it would have horrified the ancient reader who saw hospitality and the sharing of table fellowship as an intimate bond, unquote. What Craig is pointing out is that he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. He wants the reader to understand, recognize, and be horrified that when you're engaged in this kind of intimate fellowship, how could you participate in such a wicked betrayal? It would be like if you're thank at your Thanksgiving dinner, you invite someone to sit at your table and then they go into the china cabinet and steal all the, the silver. What kind of a person would go to a Thanksgiving meal and rob the host or take advantage of the host? Take advantage of their hospitality and generosity. Because you see, the meal isn't just about hospitality and it isn't just about ge generosity. It's about the friendship and the fellowship that is cultivated as you break bread together, as you are grateful to God together. And so sometimes we lose sight of the horror of what's going on in our text and just how painful it was. It would seem that each one said, Lord, is it I, with the exception of Judas? Because he's going to say something different later on in our text. William MacDonald writes, quote, when all but Judas had inquired, Jesus told them that it was the one who dipped with him in the dish, the Lord then took a piece of bread, dipped it in the meat juice, hands it to Judas. We know that from John 13, 26. Now, again, when we understand from John's gospel, John 13, 26, when he says, he who dips his hand with me in the dish, in our text, it isn't revealed, but in John's text, he takes this and then he hands it to Judas. And what does that mean? It means that he is affording Judas a special opportunity. He's placing him in the position of honor. I don't know if you have 
traditions at your house, but typically uh, one of the honors that goes to particular people is when you have a turkey, one person gets to carve the turkey, and there might be a choice part of the turkey where someone says, hey, this year you get the leg, or you get whatever. There's this moment that takes place when Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas. Again, it's a special token of affection and friendship. But in that token of affection and friendship, it's also giving him an opportunity in the midst of that affection and friendship. To be pierced in his heart and wounded in his conscience. To be able to say, how could I go through with this devilish plan? How could I in wickedness participate in a betrayal that's going to result in the death of Jesus? What does all of this mean? It means that Judas is willing to pursue the betrayal. By engaging in an activity that's normally reserved for friends and not just friends, close friends. And not just close friends, but intimate friends. Not just intimate friends, but honored friends. He shares the common meal. As he is sharing this common meal, he is going to continue with the charade. I don't know if you've ever experienced a heartbreaking betrayal in your life. But there's circumstances which make that heartbreaking betrayal even more profound. It's when it takes place in this kind of context. Judas is going to go forward with the deception. He's given the place of honor and he's given a meal and he's going to swallow the bread and he's going to drink the wine and he's going to continue with the deception and in verse 24 it says the son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him but woe to that man by whom the son of son of man is betrayed it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Remember, the Son of Man is the title that Jesus gives to himself. It is his favorite title as he expresses his identification with human beings in their human condition. The Old Testament had predicted that Jesus would be the rejected cornerstone in Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. His miracles aren't going to be believed, Isaiah 53.1. He is going to experience betrayal at the hands of a friend for 30 pieces of silver, Psalm 41.9, Psalm 55.12, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Repeatedly, the predictions have been made of exactly what's going to be happening to the Messiah, exactly how he's going to be received. And in Psalm 41 9, you'll remember the psalmist said, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David wrote those words. 
about his own experience of betrayal with a man named Ahithophel, who his son would side with as he divides his father's kingdom. And Ahithophel is going to experience a horrible fate as he's only one of a handful of people who commits suicide in the Old Testament. In Psalm 41.9, when David says, even my own familiar friend, the person who I've chosen, In John's gospel, it it repeats the words in John 13, 18, where it says, I do not speak concerning all of you. When Jesus says this word, one of you betrays me, he says, I'm not saying every one of you is going to betray me. In John's gospel, he says, I I know that not all of you are going to betray me. I, I, I don't speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, quote, he who eats my bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. When John quotes the passage from Psalm 41, 9, he omits the phrase, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. In the Old Testament, we have a few examples of people who had wished that they'd never been born. The first and oldest one is Job. In Job chapter 3, as Job experiences the most horrific Things in a series of circumstances that a human being can experience. He experienced the loss of his property. He experiences the loss of, of his children. He experiences the loss of, of the affection, if you will, and the integrity of the community. And Job is experiencing such profound loss that he goes, I wish I were dead. I wish that I'd never been born. Jeremiah in chapter 20, after experiencing a life of repeated warnings to the children of Israel who refuse to turn from their sin, who experiences repeated persecutions, basically says, I wish I'd never been born. With Job and Jeremiah... It becomes a type and a picture of hardship and pain in the, midst of, in the midst of doing exactly what God wants them to do. Job and Jeremiah are overcome with grief. But Jesus is going to make his statement as a matter of fact. It was common among the rabbis to say that it would be better if a person had not been born than to deny the everlasting and eternal God who gives us all things according to the goodness of his love. Jesus is going to reveal and expose the sin of Judas. And now he warns of the terrible consequences if he continues On this road. And that's exactly what the Bible does. It warns us of the consequences of our sin. Remember the Bible says. The soul that sins. It shall surely. Die. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the Bible also says. 
even though the soul that sins it shall surely die, and that even though the wages of sin is death, for the person who turns from their sin, for the person who will repent of their sin, for the person who will, who instead of hiding their sin and covering their sin and pretending like it's not a problem, for the person who exposes it and says, there's something horribly and terribly wrong with me, the person who looks to Jesus to be the savior of their soul, that they'll find respite. They'll find forgiveness. They'll find hope. And then Jesus makes the terrifying statement here. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. You would think that if you hear those words coming from Jesus's mouth, that you would do whatever is necessary to escape that kind of judgment, to turn from that kind of sin. No wonder the Bible is full of warnings, repeated warnings to repent. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Acts 3.19, Peter at his famous sermon says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins will be blotted out so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In all of these repeated warnings, please turn, please turn. Please turn. It's so that things could end well instead of badly. But know what it says in verse 35. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. The expression is an idiomatic one. When Jesus says, you have said it, in the text it literally reads, you yourself. It's reflexive. In certain languages there are re re reflexive verbs, like in Spanish you can say, siéntate, you seat yourself. Here, in the Greek text, it is, you yourself have said it. It's an idiomatic expression which means, yes, yes. You yourself have said it. You, you framed the answer yourself. Note in verse 22, the other apostle said, Lord, is it I? Here in verse 25, Judas says, Rabbi, is it I? Is that important? I think it is. I think there's a reason why in verse 22, the apostles say, Lord, and I think that there's a reason why in verse 25 that Judas says, Rabbi. Because in Judas's way of thinking, the Lord Jesus isn't just, he isn't the Lord. In one sense, he's, He's another Jewish rabbi among thousands of rabbis who have celebrated hundreds, 
of Passovers with observant Jews, but the reoccurring testimony of the New Testament, both of the God from heaven who says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, concerning the prophets who point to him and say, he is the Lord, he is the one who would come after Moses, this is the one, this is the one who is predicted, he is the Lord of the universe, Jesus is the Lord, and the Lord Jesus will command his followers later on to participate in this supper. Paul repeated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 26, there's a reason why Christians in every age and in every generation participate in the Lord's Supper because he is in fact the Lord. But Judas doesn't believe it. Judas doesn't believe that he's the Lord. The Lord tells Judas privately, I know that you're the betrayer. Now think about that for just a moment. Turn back the hands of time. Do you remember when David was caught up in his horrible sin and Nathan the prophet confronted him with a parable and he told him the story of a man who was living in a kingdom where a kingdom had where this this king had a whole lot of sheep and this one man had one poor little lowly lamb and this king rather than eat from his own herds took this man's lamb that he had raised and that he cared for and that he killed it in order to feed some of his friends and you'll remember David's response was that man should die and you'll remember Nathan said you are that man Unlike Judas, when David's specific sin, and he understands that he is the person with the problem, he is going to turn from his sin. But not Judas. It would have been better if he had never been born. What will the future hold for Judas? Bitterness, regret, remorse, but not repentance. He's going to be very, very sorry for what he does. But regret and remorse is not the same as repentance. Do you know why? Because people who are sorry will sometimes continue in the sin. But people who repent are willing to turn from their sin and to turn to the Savior. Judas will go to that place which was originally planned for Satan and, and for his hosts. Judas is going to hang himself. You know, there's another story of a man who, after being tempted by his dancing daughter-in-law. His name is Herod. He offers Salome up to half of his kingdom. And she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And according to the text, it says, and Herod was sorry. He was sorry. But he went ahead and he killed the Baptist. 
Judas later on in the New Testament is going to be sorry that he betrays Jesus, but he is going to kill himself. And what is the great sin of Judas? Betrayal? Yeah. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's a betrayal that's informed by a far darker sin and a far deeper sin. There's a reason why Judas calls him rabbi. Because he doesn't really believe that he's the Lord. He doesn't believe that he's the one that's sent from heaven. He doesn't believe that he's the Lamb of God who's come into the world to to save the world. His sin is a darker sin. It's a much deeper sin. It isn't just that he is going to betray his Lord. He doesn't believe that he is the Lord. It's the sin of unbelief. All unbelief is is the belief of a lie. And of course, the greatest lie of all is to convince yourself that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. I've been reading a biography about Dr. A.T. Pearson. It may be a name that is unfamiliar with to you. A.T. Pearson was a man who lived at the turn of the very last century. He was the man who took over the pulpit of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a gifted preacher and teacher, and he had a heart for missions. But Dr. A.T. Pearson writes these words. He says, quote, Unbelief, this great sin, lies at the basis of every other. It is the one sin which damns the soul, and its removal means the relief of all other forms of spiritual difficulty. If there was no unbelief, there would be no unsubdued sin. There would be no unanswered prayer. There would be no persistent darkness. The key text of this whole subject is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Later in this remarkable address, Pearson states, quote, unbelief makes void the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God gave his only son a sacrifice for the world. He gave all that he had. He gave at infinite cost for an infinite ransom was paid. If you reject Jesus Christ or fail to make him your savior, it is for you as if God had not given Christ and Christ had not died. Unbelief limits the power of God, limits the power of man. Unbelief virtually makes void the word of God and the sacrifice of Christ and the dispensation of the work of the Holy Spirit. There is but one thing that you can do with unbelief. Abandon it. A.W. Tozier will say, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief, unquote. But each and every one of us will. We'll embrace it or we'll reject it. We'll ask and answer the question, is what the Bible says about Jesus true or false? Follow what's happening in the text. The sin is exposed. No repentance. The sin is warned. 
no repentance. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said, quote, The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but the ignorance of the danger. Jesus is basically saying, Judas, I know you have a problem. Judas, I know it's you. Sin exposed, no repentance. Warning given, no repentance. Judas, I know it's you with the problem, no repentance. And that's what the Bible's supposed to do. That's what communion does. That's what the Lord's Supper does. This is why we gather. This is why we open up our Bible. This is why we speak about these issues. It isn't in order to make you feel bad. Our sin isn't exposed in order to make you feel bad. The warning is given not for the purpose of making you feel bad. Imagine a, a modern so-called Bible teacher says, well, I, I just don't want to make anyone unhappy. I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. How in the world can you actually teach the Bible and ignore what the Bible says repeatedly that the problem is a sin and, 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 and that the solution is a savior? How are we supposed to explain this? How do we explain the sinner's desire to retain evil and remain in their sin? Evil people are in love with two things, their own will and their own desires. And when there's a conflict between the will and the conscience, one has to be supported and the other has to be starved. The evil person who has to choose between the will and the conscience will invariably say goodbye to the conscience. M. Scott Peck, who is a medical doctor, noted that these people are extraordinarily willful and harmful. The people who won't turn from their sin have great wills and great desires. And at this point, when his sin is exposed and there's no repentance and the warning is given and there's no repentance and he's personally told by Jesus, you are the person with the problem. And he says, no, I'm not. And do you know what happens next in the text? According to the Bible, Satan enters Judas. And he'll leave the upper room. And we won't see him again. Until he betrays his Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Lord's Supper properly observed should serve as a time of fellowship, of remembrance, of personal reflection, but it should also be an opportunity when, uh, where our sin is exposed so that we can repent of it. It's so that the judgment would be reiterated so that we could turn from it. 
the Lord doesn't reveal the traitor in order to discourage the apostles. He will reveal the traitor in order to remind them of his own omniscience and also to strengthen the apostles. How do we know that from John 13, 19? In John 13, 19, Jesus says, but I'm telling you all of this before it happens. The text literally reads, but I tell before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. According to John's gospel, Jesus says, I'm telling you up front, not so that you won't believe, but so that you will believe. He says in verse 19 of John chapter 13, but I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. Before what comes to pass? That the one whom Psalm 41.9 makes reference to. The one who would betray. Judas is going to go forward in his plans to betray. He is going to go forward after being exposed. After being warned. And after being given every opportunity to come clean. But he's going to continue to deceive. And the reason why he's going to continue to deceive is because he's embraced unbelief with all of his heart. In the mind of Judas, Jesus is not the Lord. Verse 25. Judas wants something else. He's, he wants something more than Jesus. Do you know what Jesus is basically saying? Give up sin. Or give up hope. For the person who says, no, I want my sin and I also want hope. Is asking for the impossible. This is why we're invited to give up sin and hold on to hope. Real repentance always includes three things. We change our mind. We want to do good instead of evil. We change our heart. We have a change of heart. Instead of loving sin, we decide that we're going to love Jesus. Not only do we have a change of mind and a change of heart, but we also have a change of life. And this becomes the reasonable proof that there's been a change in our thinking and a change in our heart. Horatius Bonner said, quote, Not what these have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers, nor sighs, nor tears can ease my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. It isn't just simply a change of mind or a change of heart. It's a change of mind about Jesus. And it's a change of heart 
about Jesus, which results in a change of life. Those are the choices. Hold on to sin and let go of hope. Hold on to hope and let go of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we pray in the future, Lord, that as we contemplate the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, Lord, as we look forward to those wonderful times of future communion, when we consider the sacrifice of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the reason the sacrifice has been made, it's so that our mind could be changed and our heart could be changed and our life could be changed. And so, Lord, we pray. I pray. That, Lord, you would expose our sin. Not for the purpose of just humiliating us or showing us what a horrible and terrible sinner that we are. But so that we would use that opportunity to say, Lord, you're right about my sin. You're right about my circumstances. You're right, Lord, this shouldn't be a part of my life. Lord, this can't be a part of my life. Lord, this won't be a part of my life. I want to trust Jesus. I want to hold on to Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to walk in hope. And I want to walk in freedom. And I want to walk in forgiveness with Jesus. And so, Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that man. Lord, I pray for that woman who has come here again, burdened with guilt. Lord, I pray that you would release them for the person who's overwhelmed by failure. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you will be hope and strength and life and love for them in Christ. Lord, I pray even now that they will lay their burden down and they will allow Jesus to pick it up. And so again, Lord, we pray, we pray that you would give us keen insight on how to go forward in Jesus. That, Lord, when we are faced with sin, that our first choice would always be <laughs> to repent and to return to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.